Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. We are your host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Yes. Dramatic pause for effect. And I am Pastor Donovan Riley. We are again going into Dr. Martin Luther's lectures on Paul's letter to the Galatians. This week we're on page 243 of Geraldo Camacho's translation of Martin Luther's commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians, 1535. Page 243, this would be Galatians 3.13 that Luther is um, examining and speaking to. Mm-hmm. So let's just dive right in. Why not? Let's break form. Last week, I think last episode you pointed out, we spent 12 minutes working our way up to it. Whereas today, I'm about to jump right in and do something radical for us on this podcast. Okay. So to the book, John the Baptist, in a similar way, calls him, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1, verse 29. He is certainly innocent, for he is the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. But since he carries the sins of the world, his innocence is burdened with the sins and the guilt of the entire world. Every single sin that I, you, and we all have committed and will commit from here on are Jesus' own sins just as much as if he himself had committed them. In brief, our sin should become Jesus' own sin. Otherwise, we are lost forever. This true knowledge of Christ, which Paul and the prophets have handed down to us with all clarity, has been obscured and disfigured by the wicked religious philosophers. Yeah, so let's see, how does that work its way out in in our own experience? There's all this like insulating of Jesus, right, from from your sin. Dressing up the foot of the cross with roses, so to speak. <laughs> well, well, taking them off of it, <laughs> that's a big one. It's like we can't bear to look at the the, uh, the man Jesus who died for us, right? right. Um, no, I was thinking more just like, now you know, this is just a little sin. We don't want Jesus to take care of that. You know, we'll we'll take care of that. We'll give him the big ones, right? Right. Well, it's <laughs> Luther in his letters, the spiritual letters, letters of spiritual counsel by. Is it Tappert? Yeah, Tappert. Yeah, translated by Tappert, right? He points out in one of his letters to a colleague to beware, right? To be aware and pay attention um, to the fact that uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to portray yourself as a sinner. And this is um, destructive, this attitude mm. of to betray yourself as not sinful, but as holy or as Christian, because Jesus dwells only with sinners, Dr. Luther writes. And therefore, the less you want to be portrayed as a sinner, the less you're going to want to need Christ to be sin for you. And if you're the pastor, that will Oof. also challenge your preaching. I mean, because I mean, how can right. you, how can you have compassion on sinners if you are above them, or or you've right. intentionally tried to obscure or hide that from either right. from Jesus or from yourself? Well, and imagine the preaching of the law when you yourself are attempting to obfuscate your sinful need for a Christ that takes your sins upon Himself. How do you preach the law in its full force and power? If you yourself, like you said, are basically trying to duck and cover 
so that you're not hit by the full weight of the law, the full brunt of the law. Well, one way that plays out is that the thing you preach against um, is probably the thing that you struggle with the most, right? So you you accuse everyone else of it so that... um, what are you well, you're devastating <laughs> your your esteem of them in your preaching right. uh, so that so that you have something in common uh, it isn't forgiveness though right? right it doesn't actually build them up it actually you're just trying to level everybody out well it's interesting you brought that up about sins that we wrestle with in private and then that which we preach against because as we've all experienced at one time or another even in the press in the media when a politician or a religious prominent religious leader someone who's public goes on TV or writes in a, a public forum about this or that sin, and then they're caught in an airport bathroom like uh, the one, was it Senator or Congressman in Minneapolis? He was caught in the Minneapolis bathroom. Hmm. I can't remember his name. But um, And there's been pastors who have been caught soliciting male prostitutes in the park or wherever it might be, and then they're strongly anti-gay um, we see it all over and over again, and, and, and we see it in every generation, too. It's not just in mm-hmm. our generation. Right. And it goes to the point of character also. I am about to dig into a book called Beyond Band of Brothers, which is essentially a memoir for Dick Winters, who was in command of Easy Company in World War II. Yep. And there's a famous miniseries made by HBO by Spielberg and Tom Hanks entitled Band of Brothers based on the Stephen Ambrose book, and Dick Winters is kind of the focus of the miniseries. And Dick Winters points out that character is not what, it's not doing the right thing when others are watching you. It's doing the right thing, which is the difficult thing when no one is watching. That's actually what true character is. And Dick Winters argues that if you don't have true character, good character, that is making the tough decisions to do the right thing when no one's watching, then when people are watching, you will make bad decisions. Hmm. You will make these, and to the point of, you are essentially attempting to avoid taking responsibility for the tough decisions, which are the right decisions most of the time. And therefore, you can't expect people to, to follow your lead because they recognize that you're not a person of good character or strong character. You lack integrity. And I think the same thing goes for a pastor who will stand in the pulpit and preach a watered-down law in order to, again, avoid the necessity of preaching to himself when he's writing the sermon in private, mm-hmm. when he does have to make the tough decision to say, this is an uncomfortable word that I have to preach this Sunday because it's an uncomfortable word, first of all, for me to even write down. Right. Accept that responsibility. Right. Right. And thus, to say to yourself in private, I can't in good conscience say this in the pulpit because it's too convicting of me. Therefore, how could I confess, can you know preach it in public? It goes to character and it goes to what we've talked about, which is, well, I know I'm a sinner, but, Mm -hmm. and then what ends up happening is Jesus is excluded from that corner of your heart. Right. That's a, that's a sin that we just don't want Jesus to take care of. Right. Problem with sins that, that, (laughs) that we don't give to Jesus uh, is they're not forgiven. Right. Exactly. That anything that we call not a sin Jesus didn't die to redeem us from, which, as I've said before, when someone says, well, homosexuality is not a sin, it's just the way God made me or them or whoever, I point out, I know what you're trying to do. You're, you're, you believe you're being empathetic and you're being loving by not making these people feel excluded for their, their sexual preferences, right? 
But if Jesus didn't die for that sin, if homosexuality is not a sin, then Jesus didn't die to redeem that person from their sin. And so what you think is loving is actually the most unloving thing you can possibly do. Yeah. Leaving them dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, exactly. You're just leaving. Yeah, you're like, it'd be like Jesus getting up and walking away from the well when the Samaritan woman comes to get water and saying, (laughs) yeah, that's right. You do have one that you're with now that isn't your husband. And you've had many husbands. And I, I got to get out of here. That's essentially what it would happen. Or maybe not so callous. Maybe like, uh, why don't you work at that and come back to me when when you've straightened it out? Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) a better way to say it. Right. Right. It's like, yeah. I mean, you've had... You've had some bad knocks in your life, some hard knocks, and and you need to get back on your feet. And well, here's a five-point outline of what I think you can do to really get right with God and with your neighbor. And then, you know what? I'll come back around in six weeks and see where you're at. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where Luther is getting at when he says, every single sin that I, you, and we have all committed and will commit from here on are Jesus' own sins, just as much as- And as he points out, the clarity in that- is the freedom that comes from that revelation. There is no sin that you can hide from him, but there's also no sin that he didn't die for. So whatever you think is an unspeakable, unforgivable sin, driven through his hands and feet, done. Mm -hmm. Left for dead in the tomb. Yeah, I mean, there's really, there's no reason to hide it from him if he's the friend of sinners, right? (laughs) Right, and he chooses to dwell only in and with sinners, what are you saying other than you're not welcome in my house? Yeah, that uh, I was doing uh, Zacchaeus with the kids this morning, Luke uh, 19, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, some people get all hung up on the on the making amends, right, that Zacchaeus right. does. Right, And they miss the point that, that well, one t- table fellowship in the ancient world, but even the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to your house is, yeah, I, right. forgive, I forgive you. Yes. That's what he's saying. Right. You know, and, and of course Zacchaeus can't help but respond to that. It's like, right. wow, God is accepting me even despite everything I am, right? Right. And Jesus standing in the corner eating chips and guacamole says nothing. And Zacchaeus just starts giving back people what he owes them with interest. (laughs) And that really is a great expression in that moment of what happens when the law that is written on our heart kicks in. Is Zacchaeus doesn't turn to Jesus and say, hey, what else you got? But rather, in relation to Jesus and, like you said, the forgiveness of sins, Zacchaeus' first move is, well, now I can give everybody back what they deserve, Mm -hmm. what they basically didn't deserve to have taken from them in the first place. And to make reparations, I'm going to pay back with interest what I owe them, three, four times as much. That's freedom. But it's also the way in which the law works itself out naturally in the human heart as a consequence of forgiveness of sins, which is, I am now free to serve my neighbor. Mm-hmm. In peace, by the way, rather than sacrifice my neighbor for my peace. Yeah, and it has to do with identity. Uh, so, I mean, Jesus sure, yeah. is not not below being in his presence. Uh, he, right. Well, Jesus even is willing to take the hits for being in the tax collector's house, <laughs> right? And yeah. so that, that Zacchaeus doesn't have to think about his reputation. Well, he's going to be the tax collector that's a nut, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. But no, it's better, it's a better to be the loving nut than to be the, uh, the right. Greedy, you know, that's right. Fraud it's, or wh- whatever you say. What is that in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? He says, "I'd rather be happy than know the truth." <laughs> <laughs> and and really, that's kind of the thesis statement of that whole book. Is which is which is it? Is it better to be happy and not know the truth, or know the truth and not be happy? Don't worry. And in the end, the answer is what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the meaning of life, the universe, and everything is. It doesn't matter. 
So back to the book. Isaiah speaks like this of Christ. God, said the prophet, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We should not strip away any meaning from these words, but leave them with their proper meaning. God is not entertaining us with the prophet's words. Instead, he is pleading with great love. He is saying that Christ, this Lamb of God, would carry the sins of us all. However, what does to carry mean? To which the religious philosophers respond, to be punished. Very well. But why then is Christ punished? Is it not because he has sin and carries sin? Now, that Christ has sin is testified by the Holy Spirit in Psalm 40, verses 12 and 13, quote, For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. Then Psalm 41, verse 5 says, I said, have mercy on me. Lord, heal me, for I have sinned against you. And further, you, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Psalm 69, 5 and 6. In these psalms, the Holy Spirit speaks in the person of Christ and with clear words testifies that he had sins. This testimony is not that of an innocent voice, but of a suffering Christ, who took on himself the burden of becoming the totality of all sinners in one single person, and thus was made to be guilty of all the sins of the world. Oof. Again, like we've said before, this is just mic drop after mic drop after mic drop. So he takes on the burden of the of, of the sin of the whole world. I mean, this is uh, what do you want to say? Typified by the by the scapegoat in particular, right? Where mm-hmm. where the where the priest would lay the sins of the nation upon the the goat and then just send it out of the gate out of the out of the you know the the camp uh, to die right. with those sins. And this is this is our Jesus, right? Right. And what's extraordinary to me or remarkable is how we try and abandon this mm, yeah. at every turn to wiggle our way out. And it really goes to the point of the human condition that when we're given a free ride, our response is, I'll, I'll pass and pay my own way. Well, just think about it. I mean, if you, if you said to someone, Jesus Christ is, is chief of sinners. Right. And, and, and then the, the typical response is going to be, well, no, he's the sinless one. He was without mm-hmm. sin. Like, right. He was mm-hmm. tempted, but not, he did not sin. Mm, yeah. And it's, yes, he himself did not, which is why he is then free to take all of the sins of everybody else upon himself because yeah. he has none of his own to bear. That's extreme ownership right there. That's extreme ownership. And that's really Dr. Luther's point at other places, like when he preaches on the great commandment, that when you are free of the burden of guilt and judgment over your sin, well, what are you free to do now? You're free to bear the sins of the whole world because Jesus has taking your sins off of you and put them on himself. So he's so free because he's without sin. He can bear the sin of everybody else. And you now are also free from the burden of sin on account of Jesus's blood and sacrifice. And therefore you are now freed from the burden of your own sin to bear the the burden of the sin of the world in your body, Mm -hmm. which is the radical thing that Paul says. I think it's in Colossians, right? That we, we basically tetelestai the sufferings of Christ in our own body. We complete the sufferings of Christ in our own body 
That's a, that's such a radical statement to make. Yeah, not and not entirely intelligible, I think, to us. Right, because it, it, this goes to the point of we were discussing last night in adult Bible study how how necessary and vital it is to understand John chapter one before you read the Old Testament to grasp the theophanies where Jesus is at. Mm, yeah, in the in in just Genesis one one through five, God speaks. And that if you don't have that key to the scriptures that are that is John's gospel, let's say verses one through eighteen, that Jesus is the Word made flesh, then when the Word of God speaks to Moses or Abraham or whoever it may be, you miss the second person of the Trinity, and thus you miss that Leviticus is actually about Jesus. Mm, right. Likewise, then, if you don't grasp this fact that Jesus, who is without sin is therefore free to take on the sins of the whole world because he doesn't have his sin to carry. You then, having been unburdened from the guilt and responsibility for your own sin by Jesus taking on himself, sets you free then to be Jesus to your neighbor and complete in your body the sufferings of Christ. Well, maybe a practical example would be something like, oh, I don't know, bearing the shame of another person, right? Right. Uh, yeah. So coming alongside them, and suffering whatever insult or damage to your own reputation that might come because you choose to come alongside, you know, that right. person who's kind of, oh, I don't know. I mean, the pariah, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yet, if you're not worried about God holding any damage to your reputation right. or, you know, uh, how, your esteem of, of yourself is considered only in the light of what Jesus died for you. Then you're, you don't need to worry about that other stuff, you know, all the way the world. The, right. Yeah. You're Again, you're freed from the burden of having to worry about the other stuff. Yeah. And I think every pastor at some point in, in his ministry will be confronted with this reality that someone's going to come to you or come into your congregation who doesn't fit. And what I mean by that is that every congregation is guilty of this because we're all sinful, is that we like attracts like, to quote the philosopher. Mm -hmm. And therefore, every congregation, the personality of that congregation attracts people of a similar personality. And then that one person comes in who violates that premise and they don't quote unquote fit. And the pushback is always, we're not comfortable with him or her because reasons. And the pastor then will either bend to the will of the congregation because he doesn't want to make waves. He doesn't want a conflict to break out over this one person or he holds the line right and by holding the line he well as you pointed out one of the real dangers is he might have forfeited his call hmm. because maybe the congregation says you know what we're not comfortable with your decision and we don't want to go along with what you've done and we oppose what you do and either you need to repent and get in line with our tastes or you're out yeah and i think what drives that is is risk right they're worried there's some fear of of failure of judgment um and not only before their neighbor but before god too right yes uh, what's god going to think of us if we take we take some hits because we welcome right. this person into our into our midst right you know and so you get you get armchair quarterbacked from the congregation you get armchair quarterbacked by other pastors sometimes you get armchair quarterbacked by religious politicians there are numerous avenues of attack where this this takes place and ultimately as you've just pointed out the the root is a lack of freedom 
an utter lack of freedom to bear the sin of the other. Yeah. And rather to say, you know what? I've got enough to carry. I got enough on my plate right now and I don't need you to add to it. Hmm. Hmm. And it's, yeah, it's like, well, but that's, that's the gospel. <laughs> right. And we see that in, in Christ's own ministry, just, you know, he never has time to take a, take a nap. Right. Right. And, and the gospel writers are, you know, take pains to point that out is mm-hmm. that, you know, he was exhausted and he goes to, to a solitary place by himself and they find him there, right. but he doesn't turn them away. Right. Yeah. So, so even when he's hard to find, <laughs> um, he still, he still accepts you, you know? Right. And we talked about this again in, in Bible study in reference to Micah is God points out to his people, here's the history of me keeping my promise to you. Mm-hmm. So, because he says, here's my lawsuit against you, Israel. Right. And there's no one in Israel to stand up as a witness to testify to the truth of my accusations. So the hills, the mountains, and the foundation of the earth will testify against you. Then he says, but you know what? Before you do that, before I have the creation testify against you, how about you put me on trial? How about you bring a lawsuit against me first? Because maybe you think I'm being unjust to say you're going to be drug off into Babylon and only the Mm -hmm. remnant will return and I'm only going to redeem the broken and the outcast and the remnant. So go ahead, put me on trial. Testify against me. But before you do that, let's look at my resume. Let's look at my track record. And he starts with Egypt and freedom from bondage. And he says, I gave you Moses and Aaron and Miriam, proof of I gave you strong leaders. I gave you faithful leaders that led you. And you rejected that too. And what we discussed is, Despite Moses dying in a cave, despite Aaron's capitulation to the whim of Israel at Sinai, those are not the primary designations for God's relationship historically to those three people. Rather, God's primary relation to them is, I appointed you these strong leaders, these faithful leaders, and this is my resume. I kept my promise that I made to your ancestors from from ancient times. So it's not... Aaron screwed up, learn from his example, at least not mm-hmm. here in Micah. In other places, they do bring that up, right? Then they talk about you built the golden calf with these treasures and you had an orgy and you danced around the calf and you got drunk and did all these things. That's in the prophets too. But here in Micah, God wants to put his promise as the primary thing. And then the indiscretions of Moses and Aaron notwithstanding, God's saying, go ahead and bring a lawsuit against me. Look at how faithful I've been to you. Look how mm-hmm. faithful I've been to my promise to you. That's what's primary to this whole relationship. Uh, and you can't argue with God's resume. It's hard. I mean, you can try to argue against it, but 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 you'd have to uh, you'd have to fudge it. <laughs> well, and this is what atheists and agnostics do every day by claiming, well, if there was a God, why would He allow X, Y, and Z to happen? Mm-hmm. And again, rather as you said, rather than looking at God's resume, you look at creation and say, not impressed, don't like it, don't agree. Let's go check out Mars anyway, though. (laughs) Right. So back to the book. Paul eloquently strengthens his words. Oops, I jumped back. Sorry. My page flipped back. (laughs) Thus Christ. Thus Christ was not only crucified and put to death, but sin was placed on him for the love of God's majesty. Then when sin was placed on him, the law came and said, every sinner must die. Therefore, O Christ, if you will answer... Plead guilty and not only suffer the punishment for all sinners, but the sin and the curse. Paul then correctly relates this text from the law of Moses 
to Christ. Cursed by God is everyone who hangs from a tree. Christ has hung from the tree, therefore Christ is cursed by God. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, and what was the context of Moses' prophet, you know, Moses' statement? I mean, I think we think immediately, right? We're talking about uh, this is the way, this is the way to exercise severest punishment on someone, right? Right. You know, I mean, in the pagan world, you'd burn them, and that would be what to reject the resurrection of the body, I suppose. Sure. Um, and at least in regards to Christians, but here to hang them, you know, is to is that connected to the tree of the garden? Is that what we're connected to? Yes. It is, because Irenaeus grasps this as early as probably 125, that the tree in the garden and the tree of the, on Calvary are the same tree, so to speak. Yeah, so so the, the sin of taking the fruit that was forbidden uh, is what gets Jesus killed. <laughs> right, exactly. Christ is cursed. It's, it's a public shaming. It's a public display of the person who has committed the worst crime possible under the law, and therefore we will publicly hang him as an example to others. And again, mm. crucifixion is not specifically quote-unquote Christian because the Romans got it from the Greeks, the Greeks got it from the Persians, the Persians probably got it from the Babylonians or the Assyrians. Because I know, at least in ancient art, we know the Assyrians practiced the, the X-shaped crucifixion. Right, like uh, Peter. Right. right. And so, yeah, the Romans just adapted it to the shape that we understand it to be today. But the Greeks had a T-shaped cross, and like I said, the Assyrians had an X-shaped crucifixion cross. But it is an ancient practice of public shaming and cursing. And according to the law then, I mean, it's the ultimate sort of deterrent, right? Right. Right. So we, we're to look at the cross and say, uh, don't be like that. Don't do right. that. Well, and right? also it, it in some like Greco-Roman um, mythology or in the mystery cults to crucify someone to nail them to a cross and leave them there to be pecked apart by birds or whatever also curses their spirit mm. they're not free to go to the elysian fields or to hades they're kind of stuck <laughs> yeah but the the irony is of course that we look i mean we are to look at the cross and not say don't be like that but actually actually be like that right okay. which is a hellish curse <laughs> In all of these cultures, so everyone that's a Roman who's just there in Jerusalem or anybody that's of Greek descent or of that Mediterranean culture, when they hear, well, Jesus was crucified to redeem the world from its sin, Mm -hmm. that's a contradiction in terms because the cross is a symbol of hellish condemnation, that this guy is definitely going to hell. His spirit will definitely be in hell. So the same when he tells you to take up your cross and follow him and die in the way that he did. Right. Right. Uh, You're cursing me? Is right, it's a doing? hellish torment. It's hellish torture. Mm-hmm. That is the trouble with, once again, Jesus, even for Christians, yeah. is cursed as everyone who hangs from a tree. Jesus hung from a tree, therefore he is cursed by God. And how do you know Jesus was a sinner? Well, because what's the wages of sin? Right. Yeah. Death. Yeah, yeah. that's the curse. And uh, that's why we have to sanitize it, right? Right. Yeah. You know. I mean, just taking the corpus off the cross is is a good example of that. Right, a significant now, step. Now you have this. Now you have this pretty like T shaped thing. <laughs> I guess. Right. Never mind. It was be blood stained. Well, it's like and, every little kid asks, right? You know, Daddy, what what's the plus sign on the wall for? <laughs> or what's so good about Friday? These kinds. My of kids questions. don't do that because I think all our crosses at home have Jesus on them. Well, yeah, same here. But nonetheless, I hear it in Sunday school. 
from yeah. at least one child a year. Oh. What's up with the plus? What's up with the plus sign? <laughs> well, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a plus one. So back to the book. This is a very unique comfort for all Christians to shroud Christ in your sins, in our sins. Let us unfold him with my sins, your sins, and the sins of all the world, and see him carrying the burden of all our sins. For when we see him like this, all the vain dreams of the papists regarding justification and works will easily disappear. For they do imagine, as I've said, that there is a certain faith molded and adorned by love. According to them, this faith takes away sin, and people are justified before God. But what else is this but to take away the covering from Christ, unwrapping him from our sins, to make him innocent? It is also to burden ourselves with our own sins and fix our eyes on them and not on Christ but us. So this is the thing, isn't it? Is that what ends up happening as a consequence of rejecting Christ wrapping himself in our sins is that we are now left with our sin and nowhere to put it. Therefore, Mm -hmm. we invent works, faith molded by and adorned by what we call love or charity. But as you and I have talked about extensively, this is a transactional understanding of our relationship to God. Well, and also we recognize that our sins um, not only are damaging to us in some way, and we need to work at them, but even on a more dramatic level, uh, that God would be angry about them and that this actually is destructive to our relationship to him. Correct. Right? So then, you know, on one hand, you could give them over to the Son of God who died to forgive Mm -hmm. them, or... You could try to sugarcoat them or soft pedal them, diminish them, hide them, something <laughs> to try to deal with them yourself. Sugar-coated lies. <laughs> <laughs> this faith takes away sin and people are justified before God by faith that is molded and adorned by love. Or the late medieval way of saying Caritas, that is right? faith formed by love. Show me your works and I'll show you a person of faith. This is Luther's argument against Aristotle, the Greek philosopher that had been not really smuggled into late medieval theology, but wholeheartedly adopted by the Mm -hmm. theologians. This is why he calls them religious philosophers. He will not call them theologians because they are not, because they want to mix Aristotle and Plato in with Paul and Isaiah. And Aristotle says that a good tree produces good fruit. And therefore, show me the fruit and I'll show you whether the tree is good or not. Faith formed by love. Luther says, wrong answer, reverse that. That Mm. in this case, it's actually not a good tree. (laughs) And yet it still produces good fruit. Not because of the tree, but because of the one who is responsible for the fruit being produced on the tree. So Luther basically reverses it. It's not show me fruit and I'll show you a good tree, but rather a good tree will produce good fruit meaning the roots have to be good in order for the fruit to be good. Hence all the language from Jesus about being grafted onto the vine. Right, right? exactly. And this is what tortured Luther in the monastery, is what he had grown up being taught, and this is the prevailing theology of the late Middle Ages, which is faith is formed by caritas, by charity, by love. And therefore, this is the purpose of monasteries, is to withdraw from the world in order to meditate on true caritas, true love of God and neighbor. And Mm. to dedicate your life to then loving God and loving your neighbor without interference from the world, so to speak. Or from yourself, really, too, right? Really, it is, yeah. 
And this is what Luther actually calls belly button theology, mm-hmm. that you sit in a closet, a small room, and you stare at your belly button all day meditating on love rather than actually loving someone in a vocation. Working out your salvation with fear and trembling, but not the good sort of fear, the fear of God. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Instead, you you lash yourself and starve yourself and mm-hmm. grovel on your face. Hmm. And so he says, this is also to burden ourselves with our own sins and fix our eyes on them and not on Christ, but us. And this is why there is no end to good works, basically, is what he's going to argue. That all of these good works we invent for ourselves are not from God, they're from our own imaginings, our own sinful imaginings. And the reason we do this is because our eyes are on sin, not Christ. And yet, these works that we claim to do on behalf of God, we claim we're doing because God has commanded them. Well, which is more insulting to God, do you think? You know, the gross, obvious sin or all the ways that we try to cover it up? (laughs) Definitely the ways we try to cover it up. (laughs) It's like, you know, I'm here. Forgiveness right over here. Right. You know, uh, why why are you avoiding it? Well, think of, um, well, the garden is a good example of that, of course. We always go back to it. It's like, okay, it's one thing to take the fruit. It's another thing that Adam didn't cover for. He didn't take the blame. He didn't, you know, accept any responsibility for their action or for his action, his neglect, right? right? It just keeps adding insult to injury, you know? What began with lust for David, you know, just looking at Bathsheba, then ends up, you know, going all, he goes all in into full-on idolatry. Right, right. Why stop at at adultery? Yeah. I mean, idolatry and adultery, they kind of sound the same. So, (laughs) cover both, both tables of the law. Yeah. But this is the thing is, it's in our nature to play the victim. It's in our nature to point away from ourselves and blame others like you pointed out in Genesis and even in Second um, Samuel is, this is really the invention of religion is that the man and the woman are created for each other, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And that the purpose of us being made by God is to serve our neighbor, to love our neighbor and love God as ourself. This is the whole sum of the law. And yet you'll notice then in their rebellion, the very first thing that the man does is sacrifice the woman to save himself rather than sacrifice himself to save the woman. In faith, he sacrifices himself right there on the spot and says, this is 100% my fault. He takes extreme ownership of it and says, it's all me. Don't blame her. This is on me because you actually charged me with catechizing her. And I'm Mm -hmm. the one who spoke this prohibition to her. And then the way that she spits it out is a commentary on the original prohibition, but it's not word for word the precise prohibition. She adds to it, right? Don't even look at it. Hmm. And so Adam could have said, this is all my fault because I didn't communicate to her properly your prohibition. I may have added and embellished it. So I may have said, not only are we not to touch it, don't even look at it. Hmm. But instead he says, "Take take the woman you gave me. She was the one who ate the fruit first and then gave it to me. She misled and duped me. And then the woman says, don't blame me, blame the serpent. The serpent misled me. No one wants to take accountability and no one wants to take the hit for the original crime, so to speak. Right. And so the only one who ever comes along to do that fully and completely is Jesus. Right. Right. Because he's wholly free from the burden of sin to then take our sin upon himself, to take that burden on himself. As he says to John, right? It's fitting for for us to fulfill all righteousness. Right, right. 100%. Right, this is right. in Dr. Norman Nagel's sermon on 
the baptism of Jesus, this is his point, is that when Jesus is baptized by John in the water, John doesn't recognize that they're in it together now. This is Hmm. you and me, we're together now in this. For John, it's, no, you should actually be baptizing me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. I'm not worthy. And Jesus' whole point by coming down into the water and having John baptize him is to fulfill all righteousness, that is, to have God forget all your sin. Right, and, and to fill up the waters of baptism with his right, with his righteousness and right. take your sin, right? right, that exchange. And therefore, he must be baptized in this way because he must take his place with us in mm. our sin and, like you said, in order that we might receive his righteousness as a gift. And that's in the same nasty river too, by the way. Right. And we have the same response to Jesus coming as John the baptizer does, which is, mm-hmm. well, no, I can't, I can't possibly give my sin to you. you. You're righteous. You shouldn't even be here with me right now. Or rather, Peter on, on Maundy Thursday too, right? Right, right? I need to wash you. Why are you washing me? Right, exactly. I'll die for you, <laughs> Satan. <laughs> so this is the thing that you, you pointed to earlier, which is, we believe we're being holy and righteous and pious when in fact we're being satanic. We're by acting, withholding, withholding by, our sin from God. Right, by saying, I will die for you. I should wash your feet. I should have you baptize me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. These are all the agency of Satan, not the agency of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit says, more sin, please. Don't just give us a drop or a trickle of sin. Take the cover off the fire hydrant and just let it come. Drinking from the fire hose of the gospel. Maybe, maybe that's why that profound confession, you know, is occurs at least twice for us in the in the liturgy. Right? Mm-hmm. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why do we have to keep right. hearing that? Well, it's because we don't believe it. Right? We don't believe right? it. We're holding on to our sins, and here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away. Right. And maybe maybe sometimes violently from us. <laughs> Absolutely. I think Flannery O'Connor said that that the kingdom of God comes through violence. Huh. Yeah. In fact, she has a book called The Violent Bear It Away, which is a meditation on this. Wow. And uh, yeah, this is the trouble is that, and to, back to your earlier point too, the the dissonance then when we sing, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and there's a crucifix on the altar with no corpus on it. What and is she, it if it doesn't have a corpus? I think they call it a cross. It's just a cross. It's just an empty cross. Behold the Lamb of God who's not present here now (laughs) to take away the sin of the world. And this actually will point us towards a historical faith rather than a present tense faith because God, Jesus will be located in the past tense and in the future tense, but then we have to kind of locate him in the present tense for us. Or it's like singing those words and then not having the sacrament on the altar. Yes, that's true. All All of you who don't have weekly communion at your church. (laughs) Well, weekly communion and sing one of the divine service settings, but just skip to the end at the end, you know, skip over the sacrament part. (laughs) Wait a minute. Everything we've been doing has led up to receiving this this gift. And there's no one communicant here today because it's the second Sunday. (laughs) Right. And so we'll conclude with a prayer and the benediction, which to push this in an extreme direction that's a, a kind of hopeless ending to the divine service is praying for what you don't have and then getting a blessing. And then if you're Lutheran, you, you're told, go in peace through the Lord. So it's prayer, benediction, go do stuff. Sorry, come back next week, we'll have communion. I was thinking of the Declaration of Grace where you say, well, Jesus forgives sins, so uh, you better hope that oh. you're forgiven. <laughs> That is a horrifying not declaration of forgiveness of sins. Well, it's 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 information, 
and it's even true information. Yes, there you go. It is information. You are right. It is information. And you can do with it what you will. But yes. it's on you to believe it. So, Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, I know. It's like that. Yeah, it's like the old absolution. He gives, for those who believe, he gives the power to become children of God. That's a damning statement if, you're, if you catch me on the wrong Sunday. Mm-hmm. What, what if I don't believe? Or what if I am in doubt? Or what if I halfway believe? Does that mean I'm halfway forgiven? Or I'm halfway a child of God? What if I'm struggling this week? Does it count? See, this is the point, people, is that we need assertions. We need declarations of reality, not invitations to collate the data. <laughs> yeah, so, like, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Right. Whether you like that or not, that's what he's here to do for you. Right. Because as I said, I think it's in our nature as old Adam sinners to play the victim. And therefore, when we're given an opening like that, we will feel sorry for ourselves or mm. lament or get angry, whatever it might mm. be. But there won't be a constancy of joy or comfort at the words because the words kind of leave you hanging. Well, they kind of destroy any kind of, oh, I don't know what you want to call it. This It's actually like a self-demoralizing project. Right. Rather than being a self-esteem project, it's like, right. oh, I just have to make myself worthy to be in God's presence right. today. Right, You know, kind of drag myself down into hell right. again. Right, right. And he's like, I'm done with that. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the book, yes, that is Luther's response to his own statement. <laughs> it is also to burden ourselves with our own sins and fix our eyes on them and not to Christ on, you know, not on Christ, but us. Yes, and isn't this, to dismiss Christ altogether and make him totally worthless for us. It's nice he asks a question and then answers it with his own question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's having if, an internal monologue here. <laughs> in front of his students. If it is true that we take away sin through the works of the law and love, then Christ is not the one who takes them away. But if he is the Lamb of God designated from eternity to take away the sins of the world, and if by his own will, he is so enveloped in our sins that he became a curse for us, then it necessarily follows that we cannot be justified by works, for God has not placed our sins on us, but on his son, Christ. Now, I'll just finish this paragraph out. Mm -hmm. Thus he is punished for them and becomes our peace, and through his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Therefore, we cannot take them away. Scripture testifies about all of this. We also confess them in the articles of the Christian faith when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, who suffered, was crucified, and died for us. I was going to point out that to this day, when I point out that love is not the gospel, it's law, I will get attacked by Christians. Mm -hmm. Even pastors will attack me for saying that. And all I'm saying is, Jesus was asked the summary of the law and it's love. Like He actually... Very simply, as Dr. Luther points out too, to just take the words in their simplest meaning, Jesus does a great job in one sentence of saying, the summary of the law is love God and love your neighbors yourself. Mm -hmm. So therefore, unless you think that the law is the gospel, which is a heresy, then, or you you actually are a true antinomian because you confuse the gospel and say, well, we don't need the law, we have the gospel. But rather recognizing that love points us back to ourselves and to the law. It does not point us to Christ and the gospel. That's right. Love is the fruit of faith, but again, the Roman Catholic is love forms faith. 
So by saying love is somehow connected with the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, you're actually a late medieval Roman Catholic or a modern right. Protestant because they both confess the same thing. Yeah, I mean, if you, whoever uh, is to love me uh, must keep my word right. or follow my commands. I mean, he says right. it in a number of different ways. And I'm like, hmm, that, so who can love you? Right. Who actually loves God, um, at least the way that he commands it <laughs> or that he gives it? Mm-hmm. Or he even loves their neighbor, second table of the law. I mean, how do, whoever right. who does this? And, and in case you thought you did, um, like the Pharisees who, you know, love their, their self-appointed works, right? Right. Then Jesus is like, eh, you know, when you call that guy, you know, Raka, mm-hmm. you know, whatever that means, I don't remember. Idiot. Idiot. Fool. Yeah. When you, when you call a <laughs> hey, fool, um, you've already murdered him in your heart. Right. Because, because yeah. love would be to call, you know, either not call him a name at all, I suppose. It would be to absolve him and cover his sin. Yeah. And build them up, yeah, to cover for them. Right? Eighth commandment stuff. Mm-hmm. If yeah. it is true that we take away sin through the works of the law and love, then Christ is not the one who takes them away. That's the greatest deceit, isn't it? That yeah. we think that we can forgive our own self somehow. Through learning to love ourself. Right. Or that, the, I mean, yeah, some kind of self-appointed means of, of absolution. Of, right. I mean, it could be acts of penance, I suppose, if you're Lutheran medieval system. Mm-hmm. Um here, you know, in our setting, it could be like, um, you know what? That's that that's an old antiquated idea, and you know, we're we're more enlightened now, right? Such as the confession of sin. Well, even that, yeah, we have to get rid of that. It's an antiquated idea. It's an antiquated practice. Let's update it with uh, <laughs> with new words, so that every Sunday when they come, they have no idea what they're going to say. Right. Keep them on their toes. That's right. Okay. But even more radical yet, Luther locks into the Lamb of God has been designated from eternity to take away the sins of the world. Meaning, Jesus, the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity from eternity, has always had one primary mission Mm -hmm. to be the Lamb of God who takes away. There is never a time then, according to Scripture, there is never a time when the second person of the Trinity was not the Son and was not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which will break your brain. It will, but it also then, um, you know, confirms that when every time God makes the promise of the Son, mm-hmm. who the offspring who's going to come to save the world, right? Uh, this isn't like, well, I'm working out all these things so right. that it happens. Right? No, it actually. This is what I've. This is what my Son has come to do, and will come to do, and right. Keeps coming to do. I mean, everything right. is about saving you from your sins. It was from day one or day eight or day seven, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, and here's what will really, this is a dangerous question, I know, but I'm going to ask it. But this is a dangerous question is, well, does that mean that God then anticipated before he even created us that we would rebel against him and fall into sin? I've gotten that question before. <laughs> right, as have I. I've had that question. As a brand new Christian, I've asked that question because I've read this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who has been crucified since the foundation of the world. You encounter these texts, and if you really, really sit down in them and think on them, that question comes up. At least it did for me, and as you pointed out, it's come to you. Yeah, yeah I'm thinking of maybe Jesus uh, during Holy Week, I think, on Monday, Thursday, right? And John Mm -hmm. saying, you know, all things um, have been given over to me, knowing that all things had been given over to him, right? Right. Right. Uh, But all through John's gospel, he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, as in, like, 
I know exactly what's right. happening here. I've already mm -hmm. seen this. Right. Um, Not only you know, have I seen it, I told you how it's going to go down. Right. Over and over and over, I've told you. I see it. I'll know when it's time because I, I actually know I'm, I'm right. God. And But not only that, this is for one, what purpose I was sent, right? right. <laughs> it is, it's like I said, I think it's a dangerous question because it challenges us once again to be, well, one, sinners, in fact, right. not in theory. And two, to take very seriously that Jesus has one mission or goal, like I said. Well, the the consequence or the question that maybe is dangerous is, you know, did God create Adam and Eve to sin? I think that's yeah. That maybe that's the way to say it in a heretical sense, right? Is did God create us to sin? That's Manichaean, actually, right? I mean, at root, that would be a Manichaean question. Right, the author of evil, yeah. God maybe mm -hmm. didn't necessarily create us in the flesh that is evil and the spirit that's pure in a Manichaean Neoplatonic sense, but rather, did God create us to fall into sin? He made us fallible. <laughs> That he flawed creation so yeah, that he go. could he could uh, create this kind of codependent relationship, <laughs> right? That's exactly the kind of God we have, where we rely, where we have to rely upon Him for the part that isn't quite. Yeah, right, right. right. But it's it's like the same question of did God build life and death into the creation from the beginning, and then mm -hmm. what kind of death does Adam and Eve's rebellion herald? Is it the same kind of dying as was built into, let's say, fruit plants, fruit-bearing plants? In order for a plant to bear fruit and grow, it has to fall to the earth and die. Or did God set the the pattern of the sun, the moons, the stars, the planets, mm -hmm. the and even the plants and the seasons um, to show us from day one that right. life is about death and resurrection, right. resurrection in him? Right, yeah. exactly. Now, in Christ, I think these questions have their place and they're not that dangerous. I think outside of Christ, they're very dangerous mm. because they don't have any rooting. They don't have an anchor to keep them from spiraling into a kind of useless speculation. Yeah, they don't lead to faith in Christ. <laughs> no, no. And they might actually lead you to abandon God and forsake him. Right, because you, you say everything's absurd. Right, it makes, yes, it makes everything's no a joke, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to see how this is played out in a, a literary sense, go read uh, the works of Dostoevsky. Mm -hmm. I've been reading the Gospel of Dostoevsky lately, past month or so, and it's a book of excerpts from his novels, and each excerpt is a meditation on the Gospel of Jesus Christ, where Dostoevsky puts himself in the narrative as a character, for example. And with every atheist in his stories, this is usually at root the problem is this Euclidean attitude, as Dostoevsky says, this materialistic mindset that all this person can see is the world in front of him and all that his five senses can grasp. And therefore, he judges God based on his interface with reality. Hmm. And every single person that Dostoevsky writes then in this situation and puts these words in their mouth is an atheist for this reason. They reject God because they are naive of Christ. Hmm. Sometimes willfully ignorant, but many times naive. Well, and faith in Christ cannot come from oneself. Right. 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 I mean, you the, the best you can hope for is that somebody comes along and talks to you and gets you, you know, as Rod Rosenblatt says, to the front door of faith, <laughs> onto the front porch. Right. right. And this is, yeah, that's a great point because I think of the idiot with Sonia. I think of the brothers Karamazov with Ivan. Um, even the possessed is the character who is the suffering servant 
or the character who is the marginalized on the edges of society, the, the person who represents Christ in the narrative, is the one who alerts the antagonist in the story to a greater reality, a higher mm-hmm. reality. And yet they still require someone to say, this is about Jesus. <laughs> this is about Jesus. Yeah. And like you said, the the young woman who is forced into prostitution by her father to pay for her mother's medical bills and support her siblings, for example, or um, Ivan wrestling with his little brother who wants to become a monk about is there a God or not. The Well, in Ivan's case, it's actually he's sick with a fever and ends up talking to the devil. He hmm. imagines, or he's not sure if it's the devil or not. And in every case, that's what he is pointed at is they argue about God and faith and reality. But as I pointed out, even in the case of the Grand Inquisitor, when Jesus is the actual person, the actual protagonist, the fact that Jesus does not speak to the Grand Inquisitor, but only kisses him on the lips when he's done monologuing like a supervillain, that in the end does not repent the Grand Inquisitor. It simply convicts him of the falsity of his life and theology and the truth of Jesus. Yeah. But it doesn't convert the Grand Inquisitor because the gospel is not proclaimed to him, even though Jesus raises a dead kid on the steps of the church. Right. And so even love for your neighbor, as good and edifying as that might be, you know, uh, to build them up and, and, and to encourage them, support them. and what No greater love has a man than this. Right. I mean, it, you can love somebody to the point where they might even say, um, show me this community or show me, are there other people like you? you right. Know, I want to be a part of this because it, it's you've really changed my life. Right. And yeah, if it's left there and not, like you said, greater love than this one man laid down his life for his friends, let me tell you about that man. Right. Uh, you know, then uh, right. <laughs> yeah, no faith. No, and that's a great point I've been meditating on quite often of late because of my readings is in a neighborly sense, there is no greater love than that you lay down your life for another person, for your neighbor, because that's what we're made to do, as Mm -hmm. as I pointed out. However, that's love. And it may be the most unselfish expression of human love that you can possibly Mm -hmm. see or witness. However, it doesn't, like you said, it gets you to the door, but it doesn't, it doesn't open the door and carry you through it. Yeah, and it may even be a result of your faith, sure. right? A fruit of faith, right. that is true faith in Christ. Um, but apart from the external word coming right. and saying. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is why on Memorial Day at the cemetery, when the honor guard quotes that text from John, there is no greater love that a man could have than this. They're referring to these soldiers that are buried. Of course. And then I'm asked as the chaplain then to give the prayer. And I don't pray. I preach. Because I recognize, at least for my people who are present, if not the other people that are there, they know, well, this person's dead though. Mm Mm-hmm. And therefore, okay, he doesn't have, this is the greatest love that you can express for another person to give your life for them to sacrifice your life, but they're still dead. So what do you have to say to that? Mm. And I have to be, I believe that's my vocation. That's my office. I have to be the one to take that step forward. Physically, I take that step forward and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the resurrection of the dead to say, yes, there is no greater love than a man could show his neighbor than to die for his brothers in arms. However, the one who died for all 
who called all brother, who called everyone sister, even the evil that you died at the hands of. He died for all, and therefore they died in faith in the power of the resurrection, not in faith that their sacrifice would be pleasing to God. In the sense of, well, I'll raise you from the dead because you were so loving that you sacrificed even your life for the sake of your neighbor. And like we said at the beginning, what forgiveness of sin does is it sets you free to go take on your neighbor's sins, to set your neighbor free to do it. Right. And it's not a matter of um, impressing God or pleasing God either. It doesn't right. It doesn't need to be anymore. No. So, I mean, so you don't have to keep track. You don't have to tally. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to, I mean, you could spend all your time and effort on one person mm-hmm. and, and God's going to be like, oh, you're a poor steward. You, you know, you, right. well, no, you're, it's the one lost sheep. <laughs> he gives us a story right, about that, right? right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And mm. that is, we are inveterate bookkeepers. The old Adam is a bookkeeper. Mm. He's an accountant. He loves audits. And he loves lists and he loves right angles and he loves everything to be squared away just so because it's a matter of control. And if I can control my present and I can control my destiny, this is a sports analogy, a sports metaphor that's beaten to death. We control our own destiny in the playoffs. This is this time of year, especially in football. We control our own destiny. Actually, if you look up the definition, that's a contradiction, but Hmm. the old Adam still wants to be the master of his own fate the captain of his own soul. And what Paul is pointing out in Galatians 3.13 and what Luther is picking up on then is Jesus wraps himself in your sin to set you free from the burden of that statement. You are not in control. Hmm. And And you don't want to be. And you don't want to be because it's horrific. It is torture. Yeah, if there's something that you're going to hold on to and and not wrap him up in it, Right, mm-hmm. yes. so you're going to try to deal with it on your own. Um, it will torment you and harm right. you, right? And it doesn't go away, and it probably gets worse. Yeah, absolutely. It it gathers interests daily. <laughs> That's the problem with sins. Or as one man said, the enemy gets a vote too. And so, as much as we try and forgive ourselves, as much as we want to disregard true evil in the world, and as much as we would like to deny that Satan is real. Satan, the world, and our sin, they get a vote. And whether we like it or not, they get a say. And you don't get to control those things. Yeah, and the truth will be found out. That's the other aspect, right? Yes, absolutely. So so why are you hiding it now? I mean, you might deny it, I suppose. Right. You can confess it now and then not have to worry about it at the last day or not confess it now and then worry about it at the last day. But one way or the other... And not confess it now and have it haunt you every day. Right. Have it take up residency like a demon in your head. Yes, absolutely. You know, and yeah, torment. 100%. You. Yeah. So maybe that's the best place to stop this podcast then for today is when someone comes to you and expresses their guilt, their shame, they want to blame someone else to deflect responsibility from themselves for their selfishness, for their self-righteous, self-destructive habits and behavior and attitude. Or they simply come and say, Pastor, I just, I don't think God could possibly forgive me for this. There's nothing better to say than Jesus is the Lamb of God who was designated from eternity to take away your sins. Or maybe the next part that we said we were going to finish, but we probably should read it. That uh, the Father said to Jesus, become the P- that Peter, the denier, become that Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, cruel ex- executioner, become that David, the adulterer, become that sinner who ate the fruit in the garden, become the thief who hung on the cross, 
for a moment you must become the person who's committed the sins of every human being. Yes. Be sure you pay and satisfy the penalty for them all. So, I mean, what is it that Jesus didn't become for you? What sin did he not take for you? Right? Yeah, and the answer is, there is no sin that he didn't take. <laughs> Just look to his own friends. <laughs> no, you it's know. beautiful. It really is. And you're right, that next paragraph is really the cap. Become mm. Peter, the denier, Paul, the persecutor, blasphemer, cruel executioner. Become David, the adulterer. Become that sinner who ate the fruit in the garden. Become that thief who hung from the cross. For a moment, you must become the person that has committed the sins of every human being. Be sure you pay and satisfy the penalty for them all. Mm-hmm. And so the law comes to Jesus and says, I find that you are a guilty sinner and such a great sinner that you have taken upon on your own body the sin of all human beings. And thus I see no sins on anyone but you. Thus you must die on the cross. Then the law lunges against him and kills him, but in such a way that the entire world is purified and cleansed of all sin, free from death and all evil. Now, since sin and death are abolished by this one man, God only sees throughout the whole world, especially in those who believe, not only cleansing but righteousness. And if there remains some residue of sin due to Christ's glory that outshines the sun, God is unable to see it. Jeepers, man. Yeah, yeah. So don't worry about it. Right. I mean, in a sense, uh, in one sense, take ownership, right? Say, yes, I am am sinner. And then say, but you, Jesus, have taken that from me. Here it is. Right. Yes, exactly. Even this you've taken from me. My, and so maybe that's the, uh, maybe that's the true nature of calling, you know, Jesus your leader or your captain, right? Yeah, right. He's like the head of the ship, right? Mm -hmm. Or the the head of the the crew. Yeah. He bears it all. He bears the the blame um, and, and we have none of it. You want to see where this plays out? Look at Jonah, mm-hmm. the, the sailors, and Jonah, and Nineveh, and all of creation is bent towards the salvation of Nineveh. And yet, in this statement, Christ becomes the sailors, and he becomes Jonah, and he becomes Nineveh. He takes the sins of all of them on himself. Yeah, all of creation is bent towards our salvation, and the way it's done is by him just simply taking all of our sins on himself and letting the law destroy him for it. It was all for that moment. Right. That's phenomenal. I love, this is one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. So thank you for catching that. I slipped. That was the most important part of this was that last paragraph. (laughs) I knew you'd you'd be disappointed if we didn't read it. That's right. So I think next time we'll wrap up our epic podcast uh, on Galatians and go to page 417, chapter five, verse four. You who want to be justified by the law have cut yourselves off from Christ. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love that argument. Luther at his most Luther. And, well, Paul uh, Paul at his most Paul, too. <laughs> yes, right. So we'll c- tackle that next time. As always, please download, subscribe, pass this along to your friends, recommend the podcast, leave a positive review for us on iTunes if you think we deserve it. If you have a theologian, a very also Lutheran theologian you'd like us to read, shoot us an email and we'll add it to the queue. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the air, shoot us a question and we'll try and get to a Q&A session no, at some point. Yeah. yeah. This um, was episode 50, by the way. There we go. What, what's, the, what's the medal for a 50th anniversary? Heavy. Heavy metal. There we go. <laughs> Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, something. And uh, Anthrax. There we go. There we go. I like it. I am the man. And um, 
Come back next week for a brand new episode. He's trying to, he, you're trying to derail me and you're doing a great job. But uh, we truly appreciate all of you who listen and support us. Thank you so much for all you do to make this uh, podcast go. Go check out everything on the Higher Things website. Go to the YouTube Higher Things channel and check out the vlogs. And uh, we'll see you next week. Love you. Peace.